The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome again, everyone. Glad to have you with us on Trip Talk. Today, another visit with our pal, Erica Nelson, who is an extraordinary lady. She is one of the best known curators on the move, curator of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. Do we have stories for you? And we'll get to those stories and our talk with Erica Nelson right after this. The holiday gift giving season soon will be right around the corner. It's not too early to fuel the open road dreams of special people in your life with a subscription to American Road Magazine. With exciting features, quality writing, and beautiful photography in every issue, American Road makes a perfect gift for road tripping moms and dads, gallivanting grandparents, adventurous aunts and uncles. Maybe that special friend will enjoy it too. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com, click subscribe, and for a limited time, you can enter the code KKNW to receive 25% off your subscription. Alternative Talk 1150, local talk for the body, mind, and soul. Welcome back, everyone, to American Roads Trip Talk. Erica Nelson is a visionary artist, educator, and one of America's foremost experts and speakers on the world's largest things. She is a national researcher and speaker on grassroots art environments, roadside attractions and architecture, and the world's largest things. Erica is also the founder and curator of a unique and innovative traveling roadside attraction and museum called the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. As if all that didn't keep her busy enough, Erica Nelson is also a department editor for American Road Magazine. And right now, she's our special guest on Trip Talk. Erica, welcome. It's always good to have a chat with you and remember why I love the stories of the road. And you bring them to us. You bring them to the world. It's just fascinating. Every time we come on here, every time I pick up my copy of American Road Magazine, there you are with some spectacular material. And Erica, I'd like to start today by talking about your latest piece for American Road Magazine about the headstone of the world's largest twins, located in Hendersonville, North Carolina. I read it and my jaw hit the floor. This is amazing <laughs> stuff. Do tell. Well, and that's also why I love researching these stories because you can't make this stuff up. So it's not just um, the world's, it's not just a headstone for the world's largest twins. It's also the world's largest headstone. So. These two men lived their superlative lifestyle. Uh, they were big-boned from the beginning, um, <laughs> but also had a love of minibikes. And their shoot-up to fame happened because they were riding in their local Apple parade on two little minibikes. And at that point, they were around... 500 pounds a piece. So these are two very large men on very tiny bikes. And a National Geographic photographer shot them from the back. And it's this, this striking image. And that image ran everywhere. So then these 
twins got to start touring with their mini bike stunts and performing on the Vegas stage and even ended up uh, starting in on a wrestling career. At a certain point, they decided that they needed to be Guinness certified, so their certified Guinness World Record weights are 784 and 814 pounds. So between the two of them, Billy and Benny McCrary were just shy of a ton of fun. <laughs> well said. I'm looking here at an inset picture in the latest issue of American Road. It's a poster from their showbiz days, the world's heaviest twins, Billy McCrary and Benny McCrary. Now to give them proper credit, Benny McCrary weighed in at 814 pounds at one point, while his twin brother weighed in at a mere 784 pounds. It's extraordinary, Erica, for just the sheer taxing of two hearts there and the bodies that would have to that would have to support this life that they are living. It's amazing to me that they really, because it had to do with the pituitary condition, as I understand from reading your article, it's amazing to me that they got to be rather middle-aged men. I'm not sure exactly when they both passed, but it just seems to me like we're talking about tremendous weight to carry around and to be so visibly active in the process on tour. Yeah, and it wasn't just touring. They were actively wrestling for singing on stage in Vegas with um, showgirls that they also requested be of the correct size. So there were 400-pound showgirls performing behind them. And they did live really incredible lives. And the, um, the first brother passed away in 1979 while well, he was not because of a heart condition but because he was performing a stunt they were doing at some niagara mini bike falls stunts. yeah they were doing some mini bike stunts in niagara falls and uh billy suffered an accident and died from complications shortly thereafter so they he did not pass because of well he, he might have passed because of his weight but not because his weight held him back in any way at all. That was not the immediate cause, right? I'm quoting from your article here. In Las Vegas, they tooted trumpets while 400-pound showgirls danced in the background. I lived for five years in Las Vegas, Erica, and visited dozens of times both before and after. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, a lot of those shows, you know, have a two-drink minimum. And when I think about that, I'm going only two. <laughs> to, to watch something <laughs> like that would keep me spellbound. But at the same time, there is something, no disrespect, but there is something grotesque about Las Vegas because it's about the spectacle and all of that neon and bringing people in to do things you don't ordinarily see. Right. Yeah. Uh, along those same lines, I did see the world's largest Elvis perform in Las Vegas, and I kind of feel like the McCrary Twins show might have been kind of like his, where they he talked about it beforehand. So he said on stage that, I am a performer. I love this life. I know you feel uncomfortable staring at me, but that's why I'm here. I love that, the honesty. And it sounds like they were beloved 
characters on the stage around North America. And as wrestlers, of course, you get the opportunity to acquire quite a large following anyway. And they traveled overseas, so they had a large Japanese contingent that really invited them over again and again. So they had this whole Japanese set of fans that loved uh, inviting the McFerry brothers over. Um, so much so that they also performed under the name the McGuire Twins because it was a little bit easier to pronounce. Oh, I see. Yes, and Japanese popular culture can be quite strange to American sensibilities, maybe a bit less so these days with some of the stuff I see on TV. But yes, they, they do have a, an almost, I would say almost a reverence for that which is odd as being something oddly beautiful in a way. Yeah, something truly spectacular. And when it comes to these twins, little did I know, I don't see it as much as I used to by any means, but I do have a great deal of respect for The Simpsons as a franchise. It's great television in its way. And these twins were actually featured in an episode. Yeah, and that's been the funny part lately about American Road Magazine is that there's a lot more inset pictures which show how these past pop culture things keep coming up. So... For this one, there is a little screenshot of the McCrary twins right behind Ralph from The Simpsons in a, in a still from the Day the Violence Died episode. Um, and on some of the other things that we talk about in this issue, there's other still shots from more pop culture animated um, references. Uh, one that we might end up talking about later is there's the great animation of the frogs that was found in a cornerstone and everybody thinks he's dead but then he comes to life and he hops out with his top hat and cane and sings hello my baby hello my honey hello my ragtime gal <laughs> that is based on a real story too let us get to that in a moment we all want to hear that one erica that's for sure but to finish with the mccrary's God bless them. What an incredible couple of lives they lived. And only those two gentlemen knew what it was all about, the intimacy of their bond, the connection that they forged and how they presented themselves to the world. Only two people. It's lonely in a way to be intimately aware of what they meant and what they were presenting. And then we go to the, apparently, the Guinness Book of World Record acknowledged largest headstone. There's a picture of it in the article. Tell us about that. Well, when Billy, um, when Billy passed away after the Niagara Falls incident, his brother decided that he needed a monument that was as big and full as Billy's life was and that Benny hoped his too would be. So he uh, commissioned a headstone. There's two sort of matching sides, one for Benny, one for Billy. There's a little uh, mini bike etched in the front. <laughs> with their names on it. Um, and they flanked this obelisk in the middle that says world record holders McCrary, the world's largest twins. And that headstone weighs three tons. So it, too, is Guinness certified. So not only were the brothers certified uh, Guinness world record holders, so is that big granite marker. The start the lead to your article in American Road 
begins, few people embody the phrase living large like two North Carolina brothers famed for not only their size, but also their multifaceted and daredevilish day jobs. That is a wonderful article. I, I'm so grateful that you wrote it. And it just shows you there's always something new under the sun. Magnificent. Well, Erica, let's move on and hear about this. Now, you've already teased it, so please tell it about this horned frog that wasn't so dead after all. <laughs> well, I know growing up that that was one of my favorite um, animations to come on on Saturday morning cartoons whenever you'd see the, the singing, dancing frog. Who, um, if you remember the cartoon, was this prospector. He opened up a corner of a building and found this frog inside and it did this amazing performance and this man was so excited about it that he took him around to show other people but the frog never performed for anyone else so at the end out of frustration he sealed him up into another uh, cornerstone and i never knew that that was a real story not quite with the top hat and cane but there really was a frog found in a cornerstone of a building. Uh, the building had been built in 1897, and when they were doing the cornerstone, uh, the mason sealed up a bottle of whiskey, a Bible, and a horny toad. And in 1928, when they demolished the old courthouse, they opened up this cornerstone, found all three, and to their surprise, the frog moved and lived. I find that almost impossible to believe. That is incredible. Well, that's the wonder about our cold-blooded um, relatives, is that they can go into this deep, deep hibernation and just slow all of their body processes down. So it was just a 30-year sleep for this corn toad. And then they named him Old Rip after Rip Van Winkle. And okay. Old Rip ended up touring the country. He was a guest at the White House. Um, he toured Broadway. He really made a show. Out, they really made a show out of this miraculous survivor, Old Rip Toad. And then when he died, he continued the tour. They had him stuffed, and eventually he came back to the courthouse in Eastland, Texas, and you can still see him there today in a little tiny coffin uh, as one of the most famous horny toads in all of Eastland, Texas. I think that is amazing. That's one of those stories you would expect to read in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Correct. And that's why these are so fun, because, again, you can't make this stuff up. Or if you did make it up, it wouldn't be nearly as fanciful. That is excellent. Well, you know, Erica, before this show becomes a podcast distributed worldwide. It is a live radio broadcast in Puget Sound. Seattle and Puget Sound, far and wide, Western Washington gets to hear these stories first, and I love that. There is a place down on the waterfront. I've been there several times. It is Ye Old Curiosity Shop, and what an exceptionally wonderful place that absolutely boggles the mind. People come from the world around to visit it. Ye old curiosity shop. What is it that you find there most fascinating? There's an article about it in the current issue of American Road. It's almost like you wouldn't know where to start because it's all amazing. It is 
that's all amazing. And um, I got to visit just uh, two years ago because it had been 10 years since my first visit there and time to revisit again. And at first, it seems like just another curio shop until you start looking up or you start looking behind to the things not for sale, but the things on display and realize that they have this beautiful, amazing collections of curiosities. Uh, there's some mummies that have been there for 50 or 60 years. There's, um, I'm going to use the technical name for it. There's a, there's a whale's usik hanging from the ceiling. Um, and you'll have to go and find out what the, what part of the anatomy the usik is. Don't poke your eye out. Right. Right, you could poke your eye with that thing. <laughs> uh, collections of shrunken heads. Uh, but what I always look for in some of these places are mermen. Because every once in a while, you'll run across a fish-human, kind of like well, kind of like a mermaid, but they're usually more fish-based than uh, mermaid-based. And Ye old Curiosity Shop is just the kind of place where you could spot a merman in and amongst its collection. You remind me of a story. There is a, uh, a minister of my acquaintance who's moved out of the Sarasota, Florida area where I reside. But one time at a party, he showed me his Christmas tree. And it was every decoration, everyone was some variety of a merman. The entire thing. That was it. He had lights and, and mermen. And so this was his mer, merman collection on a Christmas tree. And that got to be the talk around town for sure. That's just one of those nice curios that this minister would put up every year and was celebrated for doing so. It's it's a lot of fun with that to take on that whole concept and see where you can go with it. That's for sure. But, you know, Erica, when we talk about ye old curiosity shop, this is something that really boggles people's minds when they go in, as it did mine when I first encountered it. And I had mixed feelings about it. I'd like to get your reaction. When you go to ye old curiosity shop, inevitably, as full as it is, I mean, from the floor to the rafters, everybody comes away talking about, among others, Sylvester. Who is Sylvester and why is he significant? Well, Sylvester is one of the one of their earliest and uh, most most recognized oddities, and it is a human mummy. Uh, he has a very well formed mustache. His arm is kind of crossed over his chest, and another arm sort of over his stomach. And he is in a display case along with another female mummy and even a child mummy. And the placard next to him says that he is a Old West gunfighter with that was shot in the belly and left to die out in the desert. And the desert mm. preserved him well, and two new cowboys found him and brought him in, and then it was acquired by Yield Curiosity Shop. Now, that's been I... disproven by more than a couple people because there's been um, some television shows who have come by and done forensics on the mummy and said, well, that's not exactly true. He is more likely uh, preserved with arsenic as most most people had been um, before the use of tradition or what we think of now as embalming fluids. Um, so a lot of the 
story is just that, a story. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people wouldn't know. That's why there is journalism and then you have legends. I'll tell you, Eric, I mentioned a moment ago that I had mixed feelings. I've talked about this from people uh, with people from time to time over the years because I first saw this in the late 80s. But when I look at Sylvester and the other mummified human remains, and I, I wonder if it occurred to you, but it sure did to me. Why not, despite the spectacle and the crowds that spectacle will attract, why not give them a proper burial? I have never asked the owners, the proprietors of Ye Old Curiosity Shop, but sometime when I visit Seattle again, I think I would like to ask about that because there just seems to be something not quite right about standing them up in display cases. What's your opinion? Yeah, I can, I can, I can very much see that because if you think about your own relatives, would they have wanted this same to happen to them. Um, I happened to live next door to a folk art site that at, it, at one corner has a mausoleum where the creator of the site decided to make himself into a mummy and be on display. So in his case, it was his choice. I in see. the case of the mummies at the curiosity shop, um, it is not their choice. And it also means that somebody would have profited by selling them as curios, selling a human being as a curio to be on display. Well said. It's food for thought. And so I think about that and I just wonder, you know, is it's especially interesting to me just to wrap up this part of our episode together. But. Seattle is well known for its political correctness. It was once called a citadel of civility. I thought that was a nice turn of phrase, and it does apply. And yet I do not know of any movement to try and give them a proper burial, such as been done for tribes people whose remains were discovered after thousands of years in sediment there around the state of Washington. I just find that curious, and I don't know if there's exactly an end to this story. There may might be years and years before there's anything definite about it, but it's worth looking into. I'll just leave it at that. So, well, Erica, rest with, in, rest in well, peace. Rest and in peace. Well said, my lady, that's for <laughs> sure. I wanted to talk to you for a bit about your your designation. You're a curator. You have this traveling exhibit. You're very energetic. You're very well-educated. And you know quite a lot about a term that I don't think I encountered before meeting you, and that is grassroots art. And I say grassroots art, and then I, I think about like the Cadillac Ranch, that monument, the, the face of which is ever-changing with people coming and applying paint, making it their own. There, and I look at that and I wonder, okay, grassroots art, is that a kind of movement unto itself? Um, sort of. It's one of those, it's a term that I like to use whenever I'm talking about art that some people might label as folk or outsider or in those middle ranges between what they've been taught is capital A art and what is approachable and involving and engaging and growing up out of a community. Um, like the, those Cadillacs popping up out of the desert, they were created by an art collective, but 
they welcome visitors. So it ends up being this interactive thing that most people, if you stop them on the road and say, hey, is that art? They'd say no, even though its intention has always been art and always been to be that sort of thing that pulls people together. So that art that grows from the ground up, to me, encompasses sometimes the roadside attractions, sometimes the environments that just fill you with a sense of wonder, but you don't automatically label it art, even if that's exactly what it is. That is very curious in itself. And I've also noticed, Erica, that whereas some are easily accessible, there are places where you have to mean to go there. You have to have that intention if you're going to reach it, which is why they are not just roadside attractions, but also places that become the source of pilgrimages, if you will. Yes. Yes. Uh, because, uh, for example, Cadillac Ranch is in Amarillo, Texas. There's another car-based one in Alliance, Nebraska called Carhenge, which is a replica of Stonehenge made out of cars. And you have to mean to go there. It's not <laughs> on the way. It's uh, pretty... You, you have to see the spot on the map and decide, yes, that's it. And the last pilgrimage I went on there to go to there was for the total solar eclipse. Alliance Nebraska got the full two and a half minutes, so people from all over the country flocked to Carhenge to witness the eclipse at this sort of fun, irreverent, sort of um, celestial-based site, but also very much a tribute to the American road. So it was so cool to see that full two and a half minutes in and amongst a field full of people who will pilgrimage to a site. And everybody remembers where they were at that moment. It inspires that kind of memory. Oh, yeah. And especially when it's a shared memory, because there's that such a narrow path that it was that it brought people together wherever they were able to be. So even if you're only sharing a park with 50 or 60 people or a field with two or 3,000 or a city where you didn't quite know what was going on and all of a sudden people start whipping out their glasses and looking up and this bizarre feeling just sort of sweeps across that path along with it. It's, it's a wonderful unifier where for just a second we can think about something else outside of our own realm. What a beautiful memory that would be. Erica Nelson, thank you once again for joining us on Trip Talk. I always look forward to your visits. You're a great interview. Save up some stories for next time. We will have you on again before long. Oh, I am always out there collecting, so I look forward to it. You go. Erica Nelson, everybody, thanks for tuning into American Road Trip Talk along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine, we remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.